If you will, this morning, please turn with me to the book of Acts. As we begin our study on this book, we will be in that book for quite a while. It's a long book, and there's a lot there. So as we begin our look, our study on this book, we'll look at the first 11 verses of chapter 1. Before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer, ask for his help with it. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we are coming to a book that has a lot to say about your church, has a lot to say about how the early church did things, some of their successes, their failures, the men and women who were maybe even heroes during that time, but Lord, help us not to focus on those those churches or those men and women, but to focus on you and you alone. You are the object of our worship, and it's to you that we come this morning. And so we pray that as we open this text, you would help us with it, that you would direct our hearts and our minds to learn more about you, how we ought to be in this world, that we would be convicted of our sin And that we would be shown the truth of what you have done for us, what you are continuing to do in this world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as I came to this text this this week as I was studying, it made me think of one of the things that I enjoyed doing growing up, and that was cooking. And I still enjoy doing that. It's just a little different now. One of the things that vexed me the most growing up was how my mom could take something simple like a grilled cheese, or something that I think is simple, I guess now, and make it like so nice and perfect. But when I tried to do it, it was just not that at all. Or something simple like hamburgers or tacos or something just like that. I think of simple now, but she would just make them so good. And every time I would try to emulate that or do what she did, it was just always not that great. You know, I think we all have that feeling or at least know that feeling, even if it's not in cooking. Maybe you see a recipe but or something you want to build or make and you think, I want to do that. And then you try and it doesn't quite turn out the way that you thought it should. If you search things like Pinterest fails and cake wrecks, you can see some great examples of this. Um, hilarious stuff. Um, so what what is the difference then, at least in my case, between me as a 14-year-old kid trying to like learn to feed myself, because I was often hungry at times my mom wasn't cooking, and my mom, when she would make something, what's the difference? Well, She was always patient. She knew exactly when to flip the grilled cheese. She knew exactly like how long to mix the biscuit dough and make it just right or how much seasoning to put in the meat, all that kind of stuff. For me, I always wanted to take a shortcut because I was hungry right then. I wanted it faster. And I thought, well, I could probably even do it better, right? So I wanted to try to make it better rather than go through the experience of learning and trying I wanted it right then, and I had to eat a lot of bad food because of that. Our passage today is about waiting, specifically waiting on the Lord Jesus to fulfill his promises. 
Throughout the Gospels, Jesus made promises to his disciples. Think about all the different promises that he made. That he was going to die and be risen. That he was going away. That he would come back. That the Holy Spirit would come. That the kingdom of heaven would come to earth. And at this point in the story, in the book of Acts, some of those promises have been fulfilled, have they not? Jesus died a grisly death at the hands of the Romans, the Jewish leadership. He was risen from the dead. And now he's about to be ascended to the right hand of the Father, as we read in this text. Yet, they were still impatient. Their impatience here causes our own hearts to be exposed. As we will see areas where we do not want to wait as well. Rather than let God decide the perfect timing, we have our own ideas about how things should play out. Particularly in the church, and our own spiritual lives. This affects our faith in the Lord. It affects our ministries, ultimately, I believe. So as we look at this text, we'll see not only our lack of patience, but also the answer to that and how we should orient ourselves back to the truth. And so from that, we'll consider three main ideas, a time of preparation, the lack of patience, and the hope of God's promises. And so with that, let's stand together as we read from God's Word, book of Acts, chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait For the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come. In the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Amen. This is God's word. Be seated. So real quick, a brief introduction to the book of Acts. Again, very brief. I encourage you if you're interested in when, why, or why, and all these things that it was written. I encourage you to look that up. Very accessible information. But we'll just keep it brief here. The book of Acts encompasses approximately three decades of the church's beginnings. It takes us from this moment here in Jerusalem where Jesus is being lifted up all the way to Turkey and Rome and all places in between. It was probably written pre-70 AD, which marks the fall of Jerusalem, a very significant point 
in the history of the church. It was written by a man named Luke, an educated man, a competent writer in the original language. The prologue, actually, to the Gospel of Luke, his first book, which he, he alludes to here, is often studied in secular Greek scholars because of the style and its language. Very, very competent, accomplished writer in the language. Paul calls him a, a physician in Colossians. Uh, so, obviously, again, very educated man. It's obvious from the reading of the Gospel of Luke and this book of Acts that he knew how to construct an accurate account of history as well. And he did a good job of that. Even though he wasn't always a direct part of the action, he knew where to go get the information. He knew how to put this together so that we, the church, could be edified through that. He's writing to someone named Theophilus. A lot of discussion has been made as to who that might be. Some think that it was maybe a student of his or a person who funded his writing and his ministries in the, of the Gospels and or of, the, of Luke and then Acts, or he may have been both a student and a person who funded his ministry. Others think that Theophilus maybe is just a general term. It means God, one who loves God, basically. So it may be a general term, a general description of his audience. doesn't really matter because it's obvious that Luke meant this and meant these accounts to go to a broader audience of the church, and that's why we have them today. Thanks be to God. We'll see from this book that it's structured in such a way to show us a practical outworking of verse 8. That the gospel is going to Jerusalem and Judea and to Samaria and then even to the ends of the earth. We'll see that the gospel ministry, and we'll see this gospel ministry, take root in the early church and cause the church to prosper and grow. It's a great book. And so with that, let's... Look at the first point, a time of preparation. Verse 1, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. All that Jesus began to do and teach. Again, this shows us that this work is a a continuing understanding. And Luke understood that, even verse 2, until the day when he was taken up after after he he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles. So verse 2 indicates the work of the Holy Spirit in preparing the disciples for the work that they were about to do. Shows us that Jesus was doing ministry even after his resurrection, those 40 days that he was still on earth, making sure his disciples were ready. And in verse 3, if any reader had any doubt as to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, says that he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them for 40 days. So if any of the Christians or any of the readers here were to read this, there was no doubt that Jesus was indeed resurrected. He's here at the first part of the story. Luke puts these doubts to bed. And again, this is not written to uh, a secular audience necessarily. We're not trying to prove the resurrection to the unbeliever, but to the believer. Yes, Jesus did appear alive before he went in to be went to be with the Father. His appearances after the resurrection, many witnessed those, and Paul talks about those as well. And so he gathered his disciples together in Jerusalem. And then in verse four, what does he tell them to do? He told them to wait. Wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. 
For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. He drew from the prophecy of John the Baptist about himself. John baptized with water. Remember John said, but one is coming that will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And this was Jesus Christ who would baptize with the Holy Spirit. As he goes away, Jesus Christ sends the Holy Spirit in his stead. So Jesus commanded them to wait. How could this have been very hard for them? Think about it just a minute. Has Jesus broken a promise yet? Jesus said that in just a few days, the Holy Spirit will come down. He prophesied several times that he would die, that he'd be risen from the dead. It happened. He established his authority as God incarnate, the very word made flesh. The disciples and many others with them should have been able to go on these promises of Jesus and be fine with this waiting. They had been prepared just for this time. Jesus told them, there's going to be a time when I am going away. In John 14, and even in John 16, what did he tell them? It is better that I go away, that the Holy Spirit can come and be with you. He instructed them on the ministry of the Holy Spirit that was to come. There in the upper room in John in John 14 through 17. Saying that the Spirit would lead them to the truth and that would teach them the things that were to come. He was going to prepare them for this ministry that they that the Spirit had in, with them. And though all of this is true, the disciples still are going to have trouble with this. And that brings us to the second point, a lack of patience. Look there at verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Didn't he just say that I'm going away and in a few days the Holy Spirit is going to come? And here they are. Now, is this, is this when you're going to do what you said you were going to do? Is this when this, the, the kingdom is going to come down and, and Rome is going to be driven out? But let's look at this a little deeper. Turn with me to Matthew 19. This is one example of how the disciples understood this this idea of the coming kingdom. Matthew 19, I'm going to start at verse 23. This is Jesus' teaching on... Uh, his uh, interaction with a rich young ruler and then his teaching on that, but it leads right into his understanding of the kingdom of God. And so let me read 23 through 30. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich man enter the kingdom of God. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Our impetuous friend Peter. Well, Jesus answers him. He says to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. 
And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So I'm going to sum this up very quickly. Here, Jesus is basically explaining to his disciples that when he goes to sit on the throne, his the kingdom is coming. That there will be a time when they will be with him in glory. Rest assured, the disciples, like any man or woman would do, focused on the idea of them being on the 12 thrones and them governing in heaven. The focus of his message, of course, is the treasures in heaven out far outweigh the treasures that we have here on earth, evidenced by his warnings about early riches. Honestly, don't really know what's going on with the 12, tri- or the 12 thrones, but I do believe it has to do with our place in heaven with him. So, going back to verse 6 in Acts chapter 1, when the disciples are asking about this, this is probably what they're referring to. Is this the time when we're going to sit on these thrones? When your kingdom is going to come? Or when is this going to happen, Lord? Maybe their motives are pure. They're really just looking forward to the time when the kingdom will finally come. This life will pass away. If you're a Hebrew living under Roman occupation, this would be a great thing. Especially when you knew, when you know about Jesus' plans to return and restore the kingdom and that you'll be a part of that. It's a great thing. Of course, they want to see Rome overthrown. Christ's kingdom come. But how does Jesus answer this? Look at verse 7. He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own Authority. It is not for you to know these things. Why aren't we to know these things? Why can't we know about the inner workings of what's going on in the Father's mind concerning His creation? Well, you could probably answer this in several ways, but obviously, one is we can't handle that type of truth. We are told exactly what we need to know, and we should trust in that. And so why is it that we want to know? Think about that for a minute. Why do we want to know this question? When is the kingdom going to come? We're no different than the disciples were here. I have a few ideas on this, but I think mainly it shows our lack of trust in the one who told us to wait. Some ministries have made a mint on selling the different um, things concerning the end times. You could probably say it all started with Hal Lindsey's book, The Late Great Planet Earth, which was published in 1970. However, Christians have been writing on this for centuries about the end times and what was going to be concerning them. Some have even predicted exact dates. Some, I mean by many, many hundreds, have predicted exact dates only to see them come and go with no word at all from heaven. Followers of those ministries have even sold everything that they own, betting on a promise from their sinful leader rather than trusting the perfect Son of God. Some have written about blood moons and Russia and helicopters that are shaped like locusts and locusts shaped like helicopters and all these different crazy things. But the point is, is that Jesus tells us it is not for you to know. Now, 
we'd be lying if we said we weren't interested in the end of days, because we are for sure, that day when Jesus will finally restore his kingdom. Of course we're interested in that, that will, he will get this, his glory, that his own people will come to that kingdom. However, our problem is when our desire for this overtakes our desires to live and to serve while we're here. Many times we want to see the world as a lost cause rather than to get our hands dirty. We simply turn inward, seeking the comfort of the truth that we know as opposed to giving that comfort to others. Now we know there's nothing wrong with that comfort, of course, seeking comfort in the Lord. But when we aren't willing to share it, with a lost world, that's where there is conflict with what we have been commanded to do, even right here in this passage. That's why Jesus says it's not for us to know. What do we continue to do until he comes? The work that he has called us to. This whole book demonstrates that very fact. All 12 disciples believed in their lifetime they would see the kingdom of God come. But they continued to work until they went to be with him. And that brings us to the next point, the hope of God's promises. After Jesus tells them what they don't need to know, he tells them what they do need to know. Verse 8. So I will read verse 7 again to make sure you understand this, this contrast here. He said to them, It's not for you to know the times and seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come, has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. We will receive power. Or what power? The power to do the work that he has called us to do. What work? To be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And then after he said this, right after he said this, in verse 9, he was lifted up in this, in this cloud and it took him out of their sight. He disappeared. You know, this is a symbol of him going to be with the Father at the right hand. I don't believe that heaven is a place drifting off in the clouds somewhere, but this is a symbol that he's going to be with the Father. And so a lot has been written about this progression, this circle progression, Jerusalem being a small circle, Jerusalem or Judea, bigger, Samaria, and then the ends of the earth. And I've heard it said like this, probably you've heard something similar. Jerusalem represents our immediate influences Judea represents the next level, maybe associates, extended family, Samaria, maybe another town, another, another sphere of influence, maybe even our enemies. And then the ends of the earth, literally as far as the end of the world. Is that what Jesus is telling us to do? Maybe. I know he meant those actual places to those men and women standing there. I don't know that we should draw any direct application from these, but it's not a bad thing to do. One thing is for sure, we should be his witnesses wherever and however that takes place. And I think we should follow the examples of the apostles and their work, which took them to the othermost parts of the known world. If you look to see where the disciples ended up being martyred, it was all the way from Rome and even maybe even Spain to as far east as India. 
these words mirror the ones that Jesus said when he delivered the Great Commission at the end of the book of Matthew. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them to obey my commandments. We will be witnesses. We will be his witnesses. This is not a choice. As a child of God, we give witness to the gospel. We are his ambassadors, whether we want to be or not. That is a load of responsibility for us as believers to not only act as we ought to, but also know what it is that we believe so that when we are called upon to witness, we'll be able to give an accurate account. If this book teaches us anything about the early church and the men and women who led the early church, it shows us their character and their belief in the risen Lord Jesus Christ. It shows us how they grew in their faith, how they taught others more and more about Jesus. They did so with this unwavering zeal. And for every single one of them, almost without exception, it cost them their lives. But there was a moment, even right here in this text, where it may not have been so. Look at verses 10 and 11. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in their white robes. And said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. As they stood gazing into heaven. It reminds me a little bit of the first time that I ever rode a school bus. It was like maybe my second day of school ever. I rode the bus and it was a long ride. I do remember that. I lived out in the middle of nowhere. And what did I do the whole time? I looked out the window. I didn't want to acknowledge that there was this bus behind me because that represented, well, there was other people there. And you know uh, my stance on those other people, that is. Um, And then there was this idea that I had to go to school and not be home. And I had to leave my mom, who the last time I saw her, she was out that window. There were all these things going through my head, right? Maybe I was having trouble just letting go of that part of my life subconsciously. Maybe I just wanted to go home and be with my mom. Whatever it was, I gazed out the window. I didn't want to accept what was coming next. The disciples gazed into heaven, missing their friend and their master, afraid of what was ahead of them. Not having him there to lead them. I mean, he walked on water. They saw that. He fed 5,000 people with a few fish and a few loaves of bread. They actually served the food. He told a storm to stop, and it did. He died, and he came back just like he said he would. And now he's going away. And he told them to wait. These two men that they talked to, probably angels, I'm just going to assume they were. They weren't there before. They stood there. Who knows how long the disciples stood there gazing into heaven. And these angels say to them, This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him Go to heaven. Jesus is coming back, they said. 
You have nothing to fear. And so I think the question for us, are we standing gazing at heaven? Surely we long for our heavenly home and there's nothing wrong for that. I think all Christians have that embedded in them and it's a good thing. We long for this better place when we will finally be complete in our sanctification. We'll be free from sin and death. We'll finally be with our Lord, Jesus. We can't help but long for that. It's who we are. But do we long for that for others? Do we want that for the lost world that we see all around us? These men and women did. They turned their gaze to Jerusalem. And from there they went. And so in conclusion, brothers and sisters, as we delve into this book, we're going to see a group of frightened men and women. They're not heroes. They're just like you and I. Really, they are. But they go forth anyway, and they change the world. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, that did indeed come just a few days later. And God was using their meager faith to move mountains. He's doing that as well today. He could even do that here in Redeemer Community Church. We just need to be faithful to what he's called us to do. And we need to wait. You know, it makes me think of the food talk that I talked about earlier. What happens if you flip a grilled cheese too early? Well, it's soggy and it's messy and it's the cheese isn't melted. It's just not very good. But you have to eat it anyway. It's just not good at all. We have hope in the promises of God. He will grow his church. He will use his people to do amazing things. He has and he will and he will continue to do so. He will do that. And so, brothers and sisters, let us continue to be faithful to the work that he has called us to do. And wait on him to move. Let us continue to be his witnesses in our families, in Murray, and Callaway County, and even to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, we... Or I admit many times to gazing into heaven. Not being willing to wait on what you are doing or what you will do. But just wanting to have it my own way. And if I'm not able, I just want to wait on you. And just sit and gaze into heaven wondering. But Lord, there's so much to do. There's so many who don't know you. And so Lord I pray. I pray this for all of us. That we would know. What it means to be your witnesses. That you would show us. More and more. What it means to witness to the truth. Of who you are. To your death. To your resurrection. To the fact that you reign even now. In heaven at the right hand of the father. That you intercede on our behalf. That we might be your ambassadors. To the truth. And so, Lord, help us to be witnesses that others might know and that they might believe. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.